3: KQD KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Water has agency, it wants to go where it wants to go. Humans, particularly in recent centuries, have come crosswise with the desires of water, and through the application of almost unimaginable amounts of concrete, pumps the size of houses and enormous canals, we've almost, most of the time, been able to make the water go where we want and not where we don't. But journalist Erica guys argues in her new book, Water Always Wins, that the era of mega-engineered infrastructure is coming to an end. Our water system here in the state and around the world is not going to hold out for much longer. And what comes after will require us to live and work with water's desires, not against them. That conversation's coming up next after this news. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome to Forum. In her new book, Water Always Wins, Erica Guise begins here in the San Francisco Bay Area where she grew up, tracking down the remnants of the creeks that used to flow through San Francisco. She tells us about paleo valleys, the remnants of previous glacial periods that may hold the key to stabilizing the hydrology of the Central Valley. It turns out there are water mysteries all around us. And if we can figure them out, we may be able to build a new kind of infrastructure that's more flexible, resilient, and And compatible with the rest of the biosphere we're going to need something like that as climate change drives massive and destabilizing changes to the natural and human-made water systems that we've built our entire coastal urban lives on so thank you for joining us erica guys
4: thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here i love this
3: idea that if you know how to read a landscape like urban or rural you can reveal the secret traces of water and this is kind of how you open your book host hunting uh, ghost streams. So what's a ghost stream and what do they tell us about what we've done to water in our cities?
4: Yeah, um, ghost streams are creeks or small rivers that underlie cities around the world. And the kind of standard development pattern has been to put those in pipes, uh, bury them underground and then build more things on top of them. And the problem when we're having bigger rainstorms uh, that we're seeing now with climate change is that those pipes are often not enough to contain that water. And so we see signs of that. Um, And, you know, even before climate change, there are people who have creeks popping up in their basements Mm. or... um, you know, like uh, in the book, Joel Pomerantz, a San Franciscan who's very into hunting ghost streams, shows me a place in Alamo Square Park where there's always this little pool of water, and it's because there are springs under the park that seep continually.
3: I love that detail. <laughs> and, you know, when you learn about those h- hidden bits of our you know aquatic uh, world, what do you think it tells you about how our water infrastructure needs to change?
4: Well, we've had a very control-oriented attitude toward water over the last 150 or so years in Western development. Um, you know, We try to keep it from certain fields, uh, so we build levees, or we fill in wetlands and build on top of them. Um, we build seawalls. Uh, so we've tended to see water either as a commodity or a threat, but that is not necessarily required <laughs> for humans mm. to see water that way. There are many, many cultures around the world, um, especially indigenous cultures, who see water as a friend or a relative. And uh, when you have that attitude toward water instead, you s- understand that it's it's an entity with its own agency And that, um, you know, it has its own desires and relationships with the underground, with microbes, with beavers, with people. And so the more that we can accommodate water's desires within our human landscapes, um, the more resilient we will be.
3: We're talking about the hidden creeks and ancient rivers of the Bay Area and the need to remake our relationship with water with Erica Guys. She's a National Geographic Explorer and author of the book Water Always Wins. We'd love to hear from you because this really is about our collective understanding of our landscapes and, and what water wants. And so, you know, we'd love to know, have you encountered a river or waterway reclaiming its territory or or showing itself in a way that's unexpected? Have you learned how to read the landscape and see the urban creeks or waterways that used to exist or that have been undergrounded? Or maybe you've seen a creek restored like Sossel Creek uh, in Oakland, for example. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733- Six seven eight six. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or KQED Forum, or you can email those questions or experiences with this aquatic world to forum at kqed.org. So I want to talk a little bit about what you mean when you say water always wins. You have this great line in the book, if water were a category of the game rock, paper, scissors, water would beat them all every time. So what do you mean when you say that?
4: Well, I mean, it's a matter of time scale. Um, but Sooner or later, water does always win. Even with our concrete infrastructure designed to control water, um, you know, water people have a joke about levees. There are two kinds of levees, ones that have failed and ones that are going to fail. And, you know, you look at dams and what's happening with Lake Mead right now, um, (laughs) you know. What is happening with Lake Mead right now? uh, Yes, it's incredibly, the water levels are incredibly low and we're... uh, Many, many people who depend on that reservoir are at risk of water shortage. So <clears throat> it's, uh, it, it has its own power and it's going to find its way. And the reason we're seeing that more and more often today is not just because of climate change, it's also because of our development choices we have actually filled in 87% of the world's wetlands. Mm -hmm. And we've intervened on two-thirds of the world's largest rivers. And the area of pavement covered by our cities has doubled just since 1992. So what those statistics tell us is that our impact on the water cycle has been dramatic. And in particular, we're interrupting um, the surface-underground relationship. And in, in California, we've long had this... Kind of <laughs> <Lie. far>, fanciful, <laughs> yeah, a fantastical idea that groundwater is separate water, a separate source of water that we can tap when surface water runs low. But in fact, groundwater feeds surface water. So in the West, we tend to think of streams as running just in the winter. But in fact, historically, a lot of them ran year round because they were fed by groundwater. But as we've depleted the groundwater, we've interfered with that water cycle. So basically, what the water detectives in my book have found out is that we need to make space for those slow phases, again, to the extent we can. So that means um, protecting or, or restoring wetlands and floodplains, um, high-altitude forests and grasslands that generate rain, In all these ways. Um, Water slowing on the land both absorbs floods, it provides water for later, and there are important um, biological and chemical processes that happen that also support other life, um, our life, water cleaning. So um, it's a very, very important part of um, the system that we have interfered with, and that's a big part of why we're seeing so many problems today.
3: I just wanted to emphasize a couple of things you said, just because I was telling the producers before the show that I feel like reading this book kind of changed the way that I saw water, even though we've done plenty of water shows, we've talked about the drought a lot, but just the the way that you make the case that surface water and groundwater are, in fact, one thing. <laughs> that these This is one system that cannot be separated in this way, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. And then I wanted you to, to drill down a little bit on kind of your kind of catchphrase for the set of solutions that you're offering in this book which you're calling slow water and you've said it a couple times but i think people might need to to dwell on the idea that you're actually saying no we need to have space for the times and places where water is going to literally move slowly right like sit on the land
4: right right yeah um i call these slow water solutions because all around the world everywhere i went the people who were really innovating in this area were looking for ways to slow water on the land in either a recreation or an approximation of water's natural slow cycles. And, um, you know, slow water uh, has some parallels to slow food. Um, The movement in the late 20th century that drew attention to where our food comes from and the impact it's having on the environment and other people. Uh, Similarly, uh, the way that we Obtain and treat water has an impact on the environment and other people That's something that I think a lot of people don't realize is it's really an environmental justice issue Like if you look at dams, there was a really interesting um, uh, Study over 40 years that found that interventions on rivers like dams Brought more water to 20% of the world's people but deprived 24% of the world's people of that water Mm. And similarly with levees or seawalls, um, you know, if you can afford it, you build it, but then that um, either pushes the, the river or the wave action down onto the next community who maybe can't afford a seawall or a levee. So, um, e- you know, our interventions have consequences on other people as well. Um, and then, s- so slow water, there's also a distributed aspect to it. Uh, if you think about how solar panels on everyone's roof adds up to a lot of electricity. Mm -hmm. Similarly, these slow water interventions, you know, sometimes people who make decisions will say, well, you know, it's nice to bring a creek up to the surface, but, you know, it can't be a significant part of our water solution. Um, But if you think about that 87% of the world's wetlands that we filled in, you understand why you're going to need lots of small projects throughout the course of water from mountain to sea in order to be able to uh, absorb all that water that we've displaced. And that can mean a community aspect as well. So, you know, we have this very centralized system where... um, you know, officials take care of our water and deliver it to us and we don't really have to think about it. So if you have it distributed across the landscape, many more people are going to come into contact with it. But a lot of the places I went on my uh, book research around the world, communities are involved with caretaking water. And it can be a really positive thing. Um, People feel a sense of agency, they feel invested, they feel protective of it. Um, and they also understand it a lot better, so they understand what's possible and um, what, what isn't possible, given the water they have available.
3: Well, and it's funny because that, de- that decentralized aspect of the solutions that you're offering here, you know, from a big engineering perspective, that's a downside from a community control, from a local political perspective, those things are actually positives. And so I think that's one of the great things that that comes out of this book and comes out of this this set of solutions. We are talking about hidden creeks, ancient rivers, and what water wants with Erica Guys. She's a National Geographic explorer and author of Water Always Wins. We're gonna get to a couple of your calls that are already coming in uh, after the break, but we'd love to hear from you. What creek streams or waterways do you live by that have impacted how you live? Or what's an urban creek or waterway that most people don't know about? You can give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org we're going to talk about paleo valleys which i promise you you want to know about when we get across the break i'm alexis madrigal this is forum stay tuned
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about our need to remake our relationship with water with the author Erica Guys. She's a National Geographic Explorer and author of a great book, Water Always Wins. I want to bring in our first caller, Christopher from San Rafael. Welcome.
5: Hi. How are you?
2: I'm good. I'm good. Go ahead. Um, yeah, no, it's not necessarily a question so much, but just a, like an observation. That I mean, I grew up in the North Bay, and there were a lot of creeks and waterways and whatnot that I mean, you could go and get crop like honestly, you could get crawfish out of them and swim in them. Um, but they've kind, they've slowed down to a point where you, that's not necessarily even possible anymore uh, to swim in them. And we are well, sorry, I am uh, and just. It's just an observation on that. Just wondering, like, if that has to do with, like, a groundwater issue, or was it just because there's not enough, like, snow up in the hills in the winter due to, like, greenhouse gas emissions? Mm -hmm. Um, Just trying to figure out exactly what. That's such a, no, it's
3: such a great observation, Christopher. And I think, you know, one of the things about this topic that's so interesting is that we've been able to experience these things over the course of one human lifetime. I mean, these changes are apparent, you know. From swimming as a kid to not being able to take your kids swimming. Um, thank you so much for that, uh, Christopher. Um, Erica, do you do you happen to know uh, any of the North Bay situation or, or similar ones around the Bay Area?
4: Uh, yeah, I haven't looked specifically at that uh, North Bay re- region, so I'm not sure what the answer is, um, but. I think it's likely a combination of development and climate changes. That's what I've seen in most of the places uh, that I looked at around the world. But definitely um, pumping groundwater is something that happens across California and has uh, dramatically depleted surface streams. So, um, you know, if I had to guess, I'd say that's a a likely contender.
3: Yeah. Um, Let's... In uh, We've got a, a one listener who writes, I've watched with interest how the Presidio Trust has restored creeks and watershed areas throughout the park. The wetlands that they have recovered there have made the park not only more beautiful, but welcoming to wildlife. It's fantastic and something I hope we can do across the country. And Lou in San Francisco has also uh, been working there in the Presidio.
2: Hi, uh, my name is Lou Stringer, and I work for the Presidio Trust, and I, I echo that comment for the last... Uh, 30 years, we've been daylighting creeks in the Presidio that had been put in storm drains and buried underground by the U.S. Army. And one of the great opportunities with bringing back waters onto the surface in an urban place is it brings back life and all the beauty that comes with threading back biodiversity back into a place and all the attributes that come with that. So I, w- I would encourage people to check out a creek that's been renamed Petlanook Creek, which is named after the old Ohlone village that used to be in the Presidio. It's a spring-fed creek that runs through the Tennessee Hollow Watershed, um, and it goes all the way to the Bay at Chrissy Field. And, and there's a little string of pearls of daylighted creeks that are little three to five acre projects that are now full of life, um, and are bringing... Uh, biodiversity back into the city, and there's trails and networks to see that. And I'll mention one other creek that people may not know about, which is Lobos Creek, which is the last free-flowing creek in San Francisco that is to the western part of the city, and it's where the Presidio gets about 80% of its water as well. It's not open to the public, but it is uh, a spectacular uh, resource in San Francisco.
3: That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that local knowledge, Lou. Uh, and Erica, I assume these are the the sorts of examples uh, of projects that you'd like to see a lot more of.
4: Yeah, and um, I am very familiar with the Lou's work in the Presidio and uh, in fact what, was visiting um, that area that he was talking about just a couple of months ago. It really is incredible that the change that they've done there. Um, but I know people can think, well, you know, the Presidio is a big park. It's kind of a unique example. You know, mm-hmm. we can't do that in the city proper. But in fact, um, the way some cities are starting to plan for that is um, kind of a forensic ecology, you know, where they and the San Francisco Estuary Institute has been involved with some of this and also the San Francisco Public Utility Um, where they are mapping where these ghost streams are and other wetlands. And the idea is that if you can figure out where water wants to go, then potentially, um, you know, we tend to think of cities as very fixed and immobile. Well, you know, there's building there, we can't do anything. But in fact, um, you know, buildings change over fairly frequently. So you can make it a priority to give some of that wa- land back to water, particularly if it's an area that has recurrent problems with flooding, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is a strategy that that people are doing in, in some cases. And, you um, You know, China has a nationwide program uh, called Sponge Cities. And so far, um, the cities, uh, it's been rolled out in uh, almost like 500 cities. And the area that they're doing so far tends to be smallish, like maybe 5 to 10 square miles. Uh, So if you have a city that covers, you know, a thousand square miles, it's not going to have a big enough impact. But um, there are many ways to get water to interact with the land within a city scape. Um, so whether that's removing a building and restoring a creek, uh, whether that is uh, bioswales, these kind of vegetated ditches um, between buildings. Um, It can be permeable pavement, green roofs, uh, people's backyards incentives for for native plants. And I just want to add that there's another important, like biodiversity is very important and not just because we love critters, but also because they are part of these systems and you actually need the animals and the plants to help the system function and be able to maintain itself which also saves money. But one last benefit is that these ecosystems, especially wetlands, actually store a lot of carbon, more than forests in many cases. And so it's not just um, a way for us to adapt to climate change within our own communities, it's also a way uh, to help reduce climate change.
3: Really feels like, bogs marshes and and wetlands of all kinds really got a bad name um
4: (laughs) bad bad rap um let's bring
3: in one more um local creek before we turn to some of these uh bigger issues arlene in alameda wants to shout out one of my favorite places too
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, and thank you, as always, for wonderful programming. When I came up here to try and figure out um, between UCLA and Cal where to go to school, UCLA is very manicured, very beautiful, lot's going on. But, oh, my gosh, um, Cal campus is just mm, so much more naturally beautiful, and I came across Strawberry Creek in sort of a miniature rough-hewn gully, so very natural and real. And, um, I mean, of course, academics were important, but this creek really sold me. It was just so beautiful. I'd love to hear more about it.
3: Absolutely, uh, Strawberry Creek is amazing. I don't know if you want to talk about it first, Erica. <laughs> uh,
4: well, uh, why don't you go ahead? I know a little bit about it, but it's well, you not, know, I, so.
3: I, I, mean, my question about it is how, uh, how, how unfettered is it? You know, it does go through. You know, it's mostly daylighted. This is like a, a feels like a lot of urban creeks and that have at least been partially restored. You know, it has open flow in some places, but it also goes under roads and does other things. And I guess one the question that comes out of it for me is how restored does a stream have to get before it starts to provide all these benefits? Is it kind of like linear where you restore it 20%, you get 20% of the benefits? Is it like you gotta go to 90% and then suddenly there's an explosion of benefits? Like how would you think about that?
4: Yeah, um, I think Strawberry Creek is, and don't quote me on this, but I believe they're planning to do some more restoration there as well. Um, So one really interesting thing about urban creek restorations is um, that for a while people have been, yes, bringing them back up to the surface and, you know, we've tended to make them very straight uh, to rush water off the land because we're afraid of flooding from all that pavement. So when people try to restore them, they sort of add back the meanders, the S-curves, and maybe put in some wood and rock to kind of simulate natural habitat. But biologists have been realizing um, that the, the life that comes back is not terribly diverse. Mm. And so that's important also for the function of the stream being able to maintain itself. And one area I found, I learned about while reporting this book that just fascinated me is something called the hyperreic zone. Hypo means under, reic means flow. So underneath a creek or a river, there's a a kind of a secret river, a second river that's flowing also downstream but orders of magnitude more slowly because it's moving through the underground. Mm. And this is not the aquifer, it's not the groundwater, Um, it's a kind of liminal space between surface water and groundwater. Mm. So it has unique denizens, um, microbes, uh, insects, uh, myofauna, tiny little guys who are doing important things like um, biological and chemical processing and breaking down pollutants and providing food to other critters in the, in the river. And in a lot of our urban creeks, um, that fast water that we've created by straightening and armoring the channels scours away the hyperreic zone, this kind of gravel and sand underneath the stream bed where all of these guys live. Um, so I looked at a really interesting project in Seattle where they were trying to bring back salmon and they had been doing kind of this typical restoration and they realized um, what this woman, Catherine Lynch, um, a biologist who worked for the city, she said, you know, the, the hybride zone is scraped away. So it's not surprising that, you know, it's not a very healthy stream even when we create it. So like, let's build it back. So they did. They, um, they layered in a bunch of Substrate for that. They even inoculated it with little critters from a healthier stream nearby, mm-hmm. and it worked. You know, it, it stopped flooding. Um, more life returned. They measured um, the the runoff, all the pollutants that wash into creeks from urban areas, and it was reduced from moving through the hyporheic zone. Um, salmon came back to spawn. So it was really an amazing uh, success story, and it's something that um, Seattle is now doing in more and more of its urban stream restorations, and there's also a, a money-saving aspect to it. Um, you know, cities have to spend a lot of money uh, cleaning sediment out of streams because uh, it accumulates because the slow water is what kind of redistributes that on floodplains, and. Uh, keeps the whole system moving. So they they haven't had to do that um, nearly as often. You know, that was costing them like 000, 000 a million dollars a year. So I would say that people restoring urban streams should think about the zone.
3: It's almost like the binary that we created between surface and groundwater was a lie that settlers used to exploit local resources, more effectively, <laughs> you know, for economic, imagine, not scientific reasons. It's totally strange, that. but it seems like that might be the case. <laughs> um, you know, the other water mystery that I wanted to explore uh, was these paleo valleys of the central valley. And this is just such a cool story and I you know, you've been reporting on water and energy for, you know, longer longer than I have. And I didn't know I hadn't heard about this. Um so maybe you can just describe what these are. You have these beautiful poetic descriptions of it in your book, but now do it on live radio and see if it
4: does <laughs> uh, maybe it won't be quite as good sure. when it's not as edited. But um basically every river coming off of the Sierra Nevada um was during the glacial periods um carved these deep valleys in the central valley, so they're maybe um uh a mile across and a hundred feet deep wow. and it was because the sea levels were lower um because the ice was providing a lot more water and then later in the glacial cycle, um the ice uh sort of scoured a lot of cobble in that backfilled the channel with this material. So if you think of a channel filled with big rocks, you can understand how water could move through that really quickly. And then later, sediment covered them over. So there and have that's been, how
3: we encounter this extremely flat Central Valley, which looks like it's all kind of one, one
4: right, material. R- yeah. Right, right. So there were four or five major glacial cycles in the Sierra. Um, but the most useful paleo valleys for putting water back into the ground are the ones from the most recent glacial cycles. So that was about 10,000 years ago. And there's a hydrogeologist at Davis who's been talking about these for 40 years, <laughs> Graham <laughs> Fog, and um, people weren't really paying attention. But in the aftermath of Sigma and with the giant atmospheric rivers that we have now and the realization that we've pretty much already dammed most rivers. Um, We need another place to capture these big rains when they come. And um, these paleo valleys are sort of like the blood vessels in our body. If you think like most of the central valley is clay, which can conduct water, but not very quickly. So if we can capture the atmospheric river water and put it on top of these paleo valleys, it can soak underground quite quickly. It can be absorbed and then slowly migrate out into the clays and that raises the groundwater table. So it means you know, all of these surface water streams will be healthier, the wetlands, um, and also people who rely on wells um, will find that the water is more accessible to them. So this is something that the state is now seriously considering. They've um, spent some money from a recent proposition to search for these paleo valleys with a helicopter, (laughs) and something called electromagnetic imaging. Um, Before they were just relying on um, drilling you know, when you drill for oil or gas or water, you can get this core of sediment and you can tell from that, but you have to look at, t- you know, 10,000 of those to find a Paleo Valley. So, so far only three had been found, but now they're searching for them by air and they're prioritizing some of the sub-basins that have been particularly um, hard hit by overpumping. So. If these can be found, then groundwater sustainability agencies can decide, oh, we're going to take some winter water and we're going to recharge it. And that way, that will help us stabilize our groundwater resource.
3: Gosh, we're getting some great memories uh, coming in about these local waterways and the role that they have played in people's lives and their hidden components. Mark uh, writes, my wife and I were hiking in the rain on campus. This is Cal campus during the giant storm of 82 or 83 and saw a kayaker racing down to strawberry Creek. (laughs)
1: Wow!
3: uh, difficult under normal conditions. I would say Um, Jeff writes, our first home was on a very steep block of Duncan street in San Francisco. We would always see water seeping out of the pavement at the base of the hill. We understood there was a buried spring or small stream causing that. People who had lived there before the development of Diamond Heights remembered that part of Duncan was unpaved and was constantly muddy due to the same seeping, which allowed mm-hmm. kids to sled on cardboard down the steep, muddy hill. And I, <laughs> you know, these stories, these uh, historical ecologists, right, they collect these accounts, right, to, because they actually are trying to build up, like, what did this look like before we paved it all over?
4: right. And, you know, I think those memories are so special, and everyone seems to have them. You know, water is very important to us, and people have beloved waterways um, or water bodies. And I think, you know, if we can tap back into that again, that is a great starting point for thinking about water's agency and what water wants. Because, you know, I think we tend to really take it for granted. It comes from the tap. It's clean. You know, we flush, and it goes away. Um, but it's it's much more complicated than that. And if we remember, if we can remember our personal relationship with a special water body, I think that's a really good starting point for thinking about water in this way that uh, I'm talking about in the book.
3: Also, for our uh, listeners out there in, in the Bay Area, particularly in the East Bay, if you go to the Oakland Museum of California, um, they have a whole exhibit on, on Sossel Creek, uh, which has been mostly daylighted. I'm not sure how they're dealing with the... Hyporeic zone uh, at Sazo <laughs> Creek, but they, they've done a lot of restoration there. And they also have a map of the East Bay that has been put together by historical hydrologists, I suppose, that shows many of the streams of the East Bay from uh, pre, uh, pre-colonial times. And it's, it's very, very, very interesting to find your own house and figure out why your basement's flooding. Um, <laughs> Nancy writes, another listener writes, I'm forever grateful to be living near Strawberry Creek Park in Berkeley where Strawberry Creek runs above ground after flowing under the city of Berkeley most of the time. I don't know the exact history, but I believe residents of the area fought to have the creek above ground in this area. The children who attend the school across the street can go to the creek at recess on occasion. It's delight." to the entire neighborhood. We're talking about the hidden creeks, ancient rivers, seeps, paleo valleys of the Bay Area and Northern California, and the need to remake our relationship with water with author Erica Guy. She's a National Geographic Explorer and author of the new Water Always Wins. Phone lines are full, so get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. That's KQED Forum, where you can email your comments, memories, uh, and hopes for the future to forum, Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Erica, guys. She's the author of this book, "Water Always Wins," which even if you've read other books about water, you know about it. There's a lot of new stuff in this book. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the big problems with water around the world, and we're going to start with uh, Peter in Santa Rosa. Welcome to the show.
5: Hi, thank you, and thank you for the excellent program. I am curious about the impact of uh, you know what some of these unexpected. Or seemingly unexpected tragedies that have happened. For example, what's going on right now in Yellowstone, and uh, also what happened last year in uh, in British Columbia with uh, rivers, you know, breaking their banks and uh, and and taking out bridges and roads and and railroad crossings and all kinds of uh, infrastructure damage. And I'm just wondering uh, where else are we at risk for that, and what what can be done to prepare or adapt to that seemingly new, harsh
3: reality. Peter, great question. And just for those who haven't been following this story, um, Yellowstone may stay closed for a, quote, substantial uh, length of time. Very severe uh, flooding there right now. And um, yeah, just a a really big deal in the water world right now. Um, uh, Talk to us about that, uh, Erica.
4: Well, I mean, it's a great example of (laughs) water always winning, I'm afraid. Um, You know, the ways in which we have built this development is based on certain parameters, uh, but it does not encompass all the parameters that water is capable of, and particularly uh, with climate change bringing bigger water extremes and with our development allowing less space for water elsewhere. Um, you know, the Yellowstone flooding just happened, so I'm not sure how they're planning on reacting to it. British Columbia, um, that area that flooded uh, so dramatically, in fact, was a giant lake up until 1920. Um, So it was not at all surprising that water eventually returned to that area. Um, In fact, there were uh, indigenous people who lived around that lake for millennia um, and kind of accepted its, its mobility, its coming and going, its ebbing and flowing. So, um, British Columbia has recently put out a report, which I admit I haven't yet read, um, that is talking about how it plans to rebuild that area. And I believe that giving space back to water is a very small part of that. I suspect not enough, (laughs) but um, these problems are not unique to North America, they are happening all around the world. Um, particularly in places where people have followed western development paths and sadly in some places this is um, you know we in the western world have gone around and in some cases asked cultures that were living sustainably with water to build big dams and go into debt for them and um, subvert their processes that were were working Mm Um one of the sources in my book calls this hydrocolonialism. So the answer um, to Peter's question is that we we need to give water much more space uh, than we have. and that space could be, excuse me, um, it can be flexible space. So if you look at some cities that have, uh, taken over formerly industrial areas that went derelict and they removed the buildings and they've turned that into parkland so that is something that people can enjoy and it can improve the quality of life in a city um, but then it's understood that you know when the water comes that area will be for the water it's only ours, you know from time to time not all the time and so you know that kind of attitude uh, that water needs its space and that we need to find ways to give it its space are, are really important um, but you know, it can also be upstream. We need to think of the whole watershed. Like, um, Pamplona, Spain, was uh, flooding a lot. Uh, I believe it was Pamplona, and they looked upstream to a farming area where uh, a floodplain had been encroached, and they gave that floodplain back to the water, and that dramatically reduced flooding in the city. So you know, we need to think sort of landscape scale when we're looking at ways to make space for water. Mm-hmm.
3: Let's do a quick uh, tour internationally here. Uh, Peter in Berkeley, welcome to the show.
5: Well, thank you, and thanks for a great show. Uh, Almost mythical, I would say, (laughs) in uh, importance. I wanted to mention a dear friend of mine, Rashbihari Ghosh. He's a Ph.D. that lives right here in Berkeley, and he's from Bangladesh, educated in England, University of Manchester, and other places. And uh, he ran for U.S. senator. Uh, from california so some people have heard of him he has this concept of the hydro same term as the grameen bank in this case it would mean the water village and it's very much along the lines of uh this author uh to cooperate with nature and build communities around natural aquifers which are uh, underground reservoirs for those who might not know and then uh you know, collecting the water just mm-hmm. more naturally, and then using it and recycling it all—all all in the physical layout—and uh, it's a beautiful concept. And I hope he succeeds and gets the attention he deserves Peter, this you. author heard yeah. of him and the uh, recharging aquifers through pumping water down and those kind of topics.
3: Peter, that's a great—it's a great point. And I—I I happen to know, having read this book, uh, that Eric is. Uh, real big focus was on Chennai, which is another city, uh, you know, kind of on the Bay of, of Bengal that is is on an old floodplain, like many uh, cities around the world. Um, so I don't know if you want to address the that particular concept, or if we want to talk about uh, Chennai and its what seems like actually possibly similar concept.
4: Yeah, I think um, you know what Peter is alluding to is the commons, and uh, the commons were a feature in many cultures around the world for all kinds of uh, natural resources that were important, including wetlands, and including in India. Um, so the wetlands were a place where people could fish, they could harvest um, grasses, uh, You know, they could plant their crops when the it was drier because there was water underground. And um, in, in Tamil, this is called Purambok lands, and, It was uh, very important and with our ideas of of private property and and ownership of water, um, we've kind of erased that community aspect and also that local aspect of living within our water means locally and cooperating with our neighbors in order to share that water. And that's beginning to happen again in Chennai. Um, Chennai is an incredibly water-rich place. You know, it it made international headlines for running out of water a couple of years ago. But in fact, it receives one and a half times the water it consumes during its monsoon. But the problem is it's so paved now, um, a growth that's happened really just in the last 40 years or so. And so, you know, they're rushing that water out, and then they've built on um, a number of wetlands. um, and those areas uh, still flood they had a big flood in 2015 <laughs> and this IT corridor that they had built on marsh you know flooded to the to the second or third story so um you know water water goes where it's going to go but another cool thing about chennai in south india is they have this ancient it's system this in the state
3: of tamil nadu so kind of yeah
4: that's right yeah it's on the southeast coast of the indian subcontinent and um So all across there, uh, there was a system called ERIS that's spelled E-R-I-S. And it means tank in Tamil. And people built this series of ponds basically from the mountains that run north-south down the subcontinent down to the Bay of Bengal. And each pond overflowed into the next pond. And these were also attached to rivers and streams where there were rivers and streams on the surface. And uh, so basically, it wasn't just, you know, building an irrigation pond. They were inserting themselves into the natural hydrology. And one thing that's so fascinating is 2,000 years later, the words lake, water body, tank are basically interchangeable because people don't remember whether they were natural or human built. And, you know, the system was destroyed during colonialism, and now in Chennai, people are looking to restore that um, to the extent possible, both within the city and outside of the city. Um each temple also had a tank so that's a a major resource that's available across the city about 53 tanks i think um as well as some of these other bioswales and and urban interventions that can all help move water into the ground and then there's also um, a great org called care earth trust that has been working to restore the natural wetlands and also um, to get both state and national laws to protect the wetlands and uh, give some of that area back because, uh, you know, development has just been encouraging them like crazy. And, you know, this isn't just a developing world issue. Um, we continue to fill in wetlands and miss opportunities <laughs> to give water space. If you look at New York City after Superstorm Sandy, um, you know, several developments have been built in areas that flooded uh, during Superstorm Sandy. They're, they've continued to build on wetlands. So it's, it's something that we humans seem to continue doing.
3: And, you know, giving water space, right, gives water time, going back to your concept of this kind of slow, slow water system. I mean, one of the things that kind of blew my mind when you were talking about this um, air s- system in, in Tamil Nadu. At its peak, it had like fifty three thousand <laughs> components, right? And the yeah. British come in and they say, "What an incredible system you <laughs> built! We're gonna pay. We're gonna do what we do now." Um, and yep. here we are, you know, a couple hundred years later, and and struggling with the the repercussions of
4: that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible.
3: You know, and of course, we have our own history here of having made these development mistakes. I mean, we, or just develop, you know. Uh, it, it, devoted land that could or should have been devoted to water to industrial uses like um, the salt production facilities, right? And you talk mm-hmm. about those uh, in the book as well.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, San Francisco Bay is a really e- interesting example um, because there were the salt ponds um, and other development, uh, you know, garbage dumps, airports, cities that destroyed about 90% of San Francisco Bay's natural wetlands. Um But people realized this fairly early on, uh, by which I mean the 70s, I think, Mm -hmm. was when one of the first wetland restoration projects began. And there's been a really remarkable degree of cooperation among um, regional governments, counties, cities, um, scientific and academic groups, um, which I think a lot of areas around the world could learn from. Mm -hmm. And to date, uh, they've restored about 28% 28% of the historical wetlands, um, but with sea level rise, they're looking to really ramp that up because um, if the tidal marshes have enough space, time, and sediment, that's you know mobile dirt both from the bay and from upland rivers, which we've blocked with dams to a large degree, um, they can actually grow vertically and keep up with sea level rise oh. and protect our development from sea level rise. That's so. Gotta yeah. cut in real quick.
3: This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support forum KQED, go to KQED.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So we so one of the things that you're that you're bringing up or that I'm kind of drawing out of, of what you're saying is that when we restore these different water areas, they actually can have multiple sort of compounding synergistic benefits, right? I mean, they're not only making it better for wildlife, we're not only providing for flood protection, but we're also doing, you know, climate change adaptation at the
4: same time. Right, and storing water for later, which is a really important concept in in California. Um, You know, this idea of local water is sort of anathema (laughs) in a state where we have these dramatic... um, engineering interventions, but there's much, much more that we can do to to maximize our local water and to keep it and not rush it out of the city and then turn later to desalinization. One thing I'd like to mention is beavers. Um, I have a chapter on beavers, and they're being used in England to prevent flooding downstream in towns, and they're being used in the western U.S., Um, as a hedge against drought to help move water underground and also as important fire breaks, not just the ponds themselves, but by raising the water table, they're making more water available to Mm -hmm. plants and making them um, less flammable. And um, beavers, uh, so in a lot of places, they're reintroducing beavers where, you know, we hunted them out 100, 200 years ago. Um, And in California, (laughs) there was an early naturalist guide that, Uh, was created after beavers were extirpated from California, and so they weren't included. So there was this argument of, you know, beavers aren't native animals to California. Um, But that's recently been uh, addressed, and we may start to see more dedicated beaver introductions to try to heal our hydrology across California. And then California also has a a flood strategy, which is newish, which is um, reclaiming some floodplains. And what they call setback levies, so moving levies back uh-huh. to give the floodplain room. So all of these things are going to help um, restore our natural water availability.
3: It's funny, I saw one of those up uh, in the Sacramento Valley, and it was it was really impressive. In part because of how much community support it had been able to to generate, um, because they'd experienced the the downsides. Um, I want to get in one last uh, caller, Henry in Santa Rosa. You've got a, a memory for us. Oh, I just wanted to bring it back
5: home when I was at Mission High School. In the 70s, uh, a custodian showed me a, a well in the bottom of the high school, and when he opened the top, you could see a creek running under it. <laughs> and also, um, also, uh, Isla's Creek, was, which is on the south side of Vernal Heights, mm-hmm. uh, before they uh, covered it over, you could take a hay barge or a schooner all the way up the creek to the bluffs where um, City College is now, Wow. Um, and even, even a little further, but um, they unfortunately uh, covered it over. There that. is a
4: project to restore part of Islay Creek. Um, I'm sure not the extent that it was, but to some degree.
3: I want the hay barge. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Henry, thank you so much uh, for those memories. Thank you to all, all of you who've shared your own particular relationship with the, the, the water that we share here. We have a couple of other um, memories I want to get to as well. Michael tweets Heavy rains 20 years ago led to repeated flooding of Santa Clara University's library basement, where the circulating collection was kept, with resulting mold growth. I was told the cause was an underground stream, which was evident, crossing 880 at the Alameda. Um, This is one of these things where you realize how disconnected various planning processes were. (laughs) Where you're like, let's plan a library with the basement (laughs) in in, in the creek. Um, another listener writes, 20 uh, years ago, neighbors in the Temescal Rockridge neighborhood worked with the Alameda County Flood Control District and the city of Oakland to create a four block greenbelt, better known as Frog Park. A portion of Temescal Creek was pumped along the greenbelt for people to both enjoy and be reminded of this historic creek. You know, if you want to just give us uh, your kind of wrap up. I mean, our relationship with water needs to change We need to give more space to water. We need to let water slow down. Are there any things that we've missed?
4: Um, Just that I think, you know, people can feel really overwhelmed by climate change. We're waiting for international leaders to make decisions about reducing our emissions uh, across society. And the IPCC report called for the need for these transformational changes in everything we do, including water. But these slow water projects are really empowering on the local level because they are all specific to their place. And they're a way that people can both make their communities more resilient to climate change and also help to, to store carbon and reduce the impacts. So um, it's a neat way to get to get involved locally.
3: That's amazing. Well, And it is the, the decentralized nature of this means there really is something for everyone who lives near a creek, which is everyone basically, uh, <laughs> yeah. to do something. Uh, we've been talking about the hidden creeks and the ancient rivers of this Bay Area we love and the need to remake our relationship with water with Erica Guy. She's a National Geographic Explorer and author of Water Always Wins. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Stella Cootie. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kin.